This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. It is Wednesday, August 10th, and it is World Biofuels Day, ladies and gentlemen. That's something we celebrate here on AOA, and we're going to be celebrating it for the remainder of the week, as tomorrow I will be headed over to Omaha, Nebraska, for the American Coalition for Ethanol Annual Conference. It's happening there. We're going to be bringing some of those discussions here over the next two days. So do be sure to stay tuned in as that ethanol industry continues to be a hotspot in this economy. On today's Today's show, we are going to be talking markets with Brian Split of agmarket.net here in just a moment. Then we're going to check in with Sarah McKay. She's the Director of Market Development, the National Corn Growers Association, and she's been working with the U.S. Meat Export Federation, helping to get some of that U.S. corn off our shores in the belly of pork and beef animals. And then in segment three, we're going to talk about something that has generated some headlines here over the past two or three days, and that is the DTN Grow Digital Yield Tour. They released their results earlier this week, showed the corn yield their results coming in at 167 bushels per acre, substantially below the USDA. Talk about the details with that. And then at the end of the show, we're going to talk with Chris Swift of Swift Trading Company about the moves that are happening here in the cattle market. But now we're going to throw it over to Brian Split. He joins us today. Brian, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Mike, it is great to be here. Let's talk first and foremost, I think, Brian, about the outside economy. We did have some inflation data get dropped on the overall uh, market this morning. What what came out from Uncle Sam today? Uh, so July uh, CPI was 8.5% versus uh, 9.1 in June. And uh, with that, the U.S. dollar is lower. Um, stocks are surging on that. And uh, we've got the, uh, the, the grain markets higher, uh, wheat's higher, soybeans higher, firm on U.S. cash, and uh, we've got a drier 10-day forecast for the U.S. Midwest and the Northwest Corn Belt really towards the end of the month through August 25th. So, uh, you know, the CPI data doesn't show that the uh, uh, inflation is, is running rampant. It's, it's cooling off a little bit, but it's it's still, um, you know, at levels that uh, are going to hurt. And um, so we didn't see anything on the CPI data to uh, to have the market sell off. Um, so that's what we're looking at there. All right, Brian, let's turn our focus over here to the soybean market. We have seen front month beans on fire for the past, gosh, month, six weeks, it seems like. Is that an indication that perhaps the carryout that we might get from USDA for 22 is continuing to shrink here in the soybean market? Yeah, it seems like there's a squeeze going on. You've got the August contract, which is, is technically the front month, but it's in delivery, right? So that contract will be expiring on Friday at noon. And uh, we had uh, gapped into new contract highs. Uh, we had actually, that, that contract made a high on February 24th, which was the night of the, uh, the invasion uh, in Ukraine. And uh, so here we are in delivery, and we jumped over that high, um, so if old crop is leading things, the next contract in line would be September. September's up 26. That's with November up 16. So we keep uh, seeing the September-November spread uh, uh, get more inverted, and uh, that's approaching a, a dollar inverse right now. So uh, it's telling us something. Either it's, it's telling us that uh, the, the old crop carryout is, is tighter than we think, uh, or the uh, the producers that may have old crop beans uh, aren't very comfortable with their new crop uh, potential. Uh, regardless, uh, somebody is caught short and it's hurting. Yeah, it is hurting a lot if they are caught short here from eight weeks ago. Brian, thinking ahead to Friday, we are going to get the next update from the USDA and their World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates on the soybean front. Are you anticipating any big changes to the balance sheet? Well, you know, we, we do think that we should see the yields come down a little bit. Um, USDA has a habit of, of uh, massaging demand lower as they lower production. And, uh, you know, that was indicative last month where they lowered old and new crop 
uh, crushed by 10 million bushels each, and then they reduced the export demand for new crop by 65 million bushels. So then you kind of think about, okay, well, what did we do last year? And last year, the USDA, uh, they reduced yield, but they also reduced demand. They kept carryout static from July to August at 155 million bushels. So USDA is currently at 230 million bushels on the July WASDE report. So then you say, okay, well, what did the futures do last year after we got that 155 million bushel number? Futures broke from about 1380 down to just above 1170. So we broke just a hair over $2 from the high a couple days after this August report to the low that we didn't make until the November WASDE report. Um, and it was a very similar story for corn where the USDA uh, lowered the production, lowered demand slightly. There was an overall nearly 200 million bushel reduction in ending stocks down to 1.242 billion bushels. And again, the corn market made a high the day of the report and broke almost a buck into the September WASDE report, which is where it made its fall low. So Friday could be volatile, Brian, is what it sounds like to me. How are you preparing to, to address that volatility? Well, right now, uh, I think one of the things that we're going to be looking at here in, in an effort to continue to uh, to market or, or uh, protect levels as uh, we see some strength here in the short term is to put some wish orders in, uh, and that might depend on how the individual producer does their business, but uh, that might mean looking for uh, cash market orders. Uh, to be running at the elevator. That might mean having uh, wish orders in the futures account to sell futures at certain levels that we feel important on the chart. Or that may simply mean, hey, let's see if we can price some put options uh, or sell some calls on some strength. Uh, but we are anticipating that we may uh, go higher uh, into the report and on the report and uh, potentially make a high uh, either on Friday or coming out of the weekend. Brian, on the corn side, yield expectations seem to be shifting out there in the countryside. What does ag market think is going to come uh, in the print on Friday? Well, the uh, the yield number that we're looking for right now on the uh, on the report is going to be a uh, one seventy six and some change. Um, we're not looking for the market to drop substantially. Um, and USDA, typically, that would not be their, their behavior. But again, um, you know, when you think about last year, the USDA did drop yield a full five bushels per acre from 179.5 down to, I think it was a 174.6, uh, a rather substantial drop in the production, uh, and we ended up making a major peak on that report. So again, I would just caution the listeners to not necessarily take a bullish report and expect a bullish reaction in the long term. We might see a bullish reaction for a half hour or an hour, um, but that doesn't mean that we're going to continue to go higher from there. That's a great point, Brian. We are playing the expectations game, and those expectations can be can be shifting awfully quickly. Folks, we've been talking to Brian Split of agmarket.net. Always fantastic insights here on the markets as they continue to change. Brian, I appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Yeah, you bet, Mike. Have a great one. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk with Sarah McKay, the director of the market development team over at the National Corn Growers Association, when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. On the first Wednesday of every month, the National Corn Growers brings us the monthly grind here on AOA, looking into aspects of corn demand. In August, we talked about the partnership between corn and cattle with Kate Maher of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. We are really fortunate to have a great partnership with the National Corn Growers Association. We work together to bring a lot of information to producers, latest technology information to make all of us better and, and keep that demand, keep that product flowing to meet that demand that's, that's around the globe. You know, we export a lot of corn through beef. Um, that's really important. Uh, we are fortunate, again, to partner, partner with NCGA on a series that we've been doing on Cattlemen to Cattlemen. Uh, we've just got such a great story to tell together. started at the seed yard in Nebraska talking about sustainability practices and, 
in corn production and beef production, and they just go hand in hand. That goes on to the next next step um, where we're producing that really amazing grain-fed beef. Tune in on Wednesday, September 7th for the next edition of the Monthly Grind from our friends at the National Corn Growers Association. The archaeological records suggest that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 B.C. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the king of Poland for saving Austria from Turkish invaders, the baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These farm facts brought to you by the American Egg Network. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it, or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Over the next two days, we are going to talk a lot about biofuels here on AOA. As I mentioned, I will be at that American Coalition for Ethanol Conference in Omaha starting uh, later on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. If you're going to be there, drop me a note. Love to talk to you. And uh, it's exciting to see the growth that's happening in that ethanol space. But of course, when we think about the demand for corn, it's far more than just biofuels and one of the most stalwart demand drivers for corn continues to be the livestock industry. And in particular, it's selling that livestock to folks around the world. That's one way we can export a lot of grain. One person who keeps up to speed on how these two industries are linked together is Sarah McKay. She is the director for market development over at the National Corn Growers Association. And Sarah, I understand you're on location learning about uh, meat and pork being shipped overseas. Yes. Hi, Mike. We should have done this in person. I'm in Omaha, too, right now, at the or just south of Omaha, at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. Fantastic. That is a great spot to be, particularly when you're talking red meat. Sarah, what is under discussion? What are you doing in Lincoln, Nebraska? Yeah. So um, the National Corn Growers Association, the Market Development Action Team, is sponsoring this week a um, red meat processing expo where they brought in uh, processors and, and meat buyers from around the world and our international markets to learn about the latest trends in processing and creating meat products using U.S. corn-fed um, beef and pork. That is very, very cool. Now, Sarah, why do corn growers need to be educating meat buyers from overseas? What's the connection? Sure. So um, this is actually the second time that National Corn Growers Market Development Action Team has sponsored this Global Red Meat Processing Expo and, and seminar. And the reason that we sponsored it is because when we look at um, 2021, on average, about 12% of the bushel value can be attributed to beef and pork exports alone. That's about 66 cents per bushel if we look at $5.48 per bushel. So it's pretty significant value. 
And not only is it a significant value equating to nearly um, $2.94 billion for the U.S. corn industry, it also has a lot of value for the U.S. DDG market. So around $716 million um, in DDGs are exported through U.S. Uh, corn-fed beef and pork. So really important to our, our U.S. corn farmers that we're expanding these international markets and working really closely with the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Absolutely. It's incredible to think about those numbers that you just mentioned. International demand for meat, not buying grain directly, just buying good cuts of beef and some, some ground pork. We've added $3.5 billion to corn growers' bottom lines through that process. And Sarah, I know that USMEF and NCGA have partnered for some time, and I believe I was told there's a very cool way you're working to teach foreign meat buyers about the modern protein production system if they may get the chance to make it to a trade show or an event like that. Yeah, absolutely. So in the past, we've... Um... We've sponsored um, the World Meat Congress, and, and in the past, and we're looking forward to doing it again soon as well, um, we have these virtual reality goggles that um, buyers from around the world can get to see um, through these virtual goggles, um, U.S. pork and U.S. beef production, as well as, um, as corn and feeding operations um, around the United States. So even though they may be limited to, to time-wise or because of biosecurity, they can't necessarily get on a U.S. Um, pig farm or they can't get out because of time to a beef operation, we have these goggles that they can experience firsthand and, and get to learn about the U.S. production system, the sustainability of U.S. corn-fed beef and pork, and a really good way to engage with, with buyers. And that's just one of the many ways, you know, in addition to this Global Red Meat Processing Seminar we're doing this week in, in Lincoln um, and the World Meat Congress, we also partner and our state do as well um, on in-market um, promotions and campaign efforts to advertise U.S. corn-fed beef and pork. Um, and we also have some, some events coming later this year as well that we're, we're partnering with U.S. Meat Export Federation on. That is very cool. Sarah, while you're talking to these foreign buyers who are there in Lincoln learning about the protein chain, you mentioned the sustainability avenue that, that really American agriculture can market fairly aggressively overseas. As you talk to these buyers, is that something they're interested in or are they more concerned about securing quality product? So a lot of it is around quality product, you know, taste, texture, that, that experience that U.S. corn-fed beef and pork um, provides because of our, our really great marbling provided from U.S. corn, whether it's the texture and just the, the overall quality and eating experience. But we are hearing more and more questions around the sustainability, um, just like U.S. consumers, consumers around the world are, are interested in, in where their food comes from and understanding the production processes. And, too, when they have a decision between a U.S. corn-fed, um, you know, beef product versus something fed, by Australia or Canada with, with barley or wheat or otherwise, um, they're really curious, you know, about, about the sustainability of those, those feed inputs. So that's something that we're, we're working on, and we're actually going to bring it all together in September. We're going to be doing an RFD TV episode with Meat Export Federation and National Cattlemen down at the Port of New Orleans talking all about the sustainability of corn and, and beef and then even taking that to the next level um, from to even economic sustainability and feeding the world through international marketing of these corn-fed beef products. That's fantastic. Sarah, how many different buyers or, or international representatives do you have there in, in Lincoln uh, this week? There are a variety of folks from um, Guatemala, Mexico. We have um, a lot of folks from the um, LATAM region, from Central and South America, from, from a variety of countries, over um, two dozen folks participating. So it's been a really good event. And they're, they're learning yes. hands-on, and later today they, they are getting to do some product exploration, and that'll be, be part of the industry luncheon. Ooh, product exploration. I would imagine when we're talking about r r red meat, Sarah, we're going to explore that product with our taste buds. Is that kind of the plan? Absolutely, absolutely. That is the plan, and learning how to use um, a variety of different spices and processing techniques to make really um, interesting and, and exciting um, food products. That is so cool. And that is probably the best way to market agricultural goods is to get them in somebody's mouth and, hey, try the difference, taste the texture, and, you know, that can move a lot of products. Sarah, I, I don't know if you've got this data handy, but I'm curious, as you look out at the demand for corn-fed beef and pork, because it's going out there around the world, is it broken down? I, it. I guess I should ask, how much can we attribute to the value of animals when we take a look at exports? Is that something that's under discussion there in Lincoln? 
Yeah, so um, there is a lot of really great data on the value um, to, to pork and, um, and uh, beef producers on, on exporting corn. You know, it really varies, and, but a significant amount of U.S. Um, beef and, and value per head can be attributed to, to corn um, or to exports of, of beef as well as on the, on the pork side. But for corn growers specifically, it's about 66 cents per bushel of corn can be attributed to um, beef and pork exports um, in 2021, at least is the, is the latest data. That is pretty incredible. 66 cents. And yeah, that was based on 548 a bushel. And those values are a little higher this year. Sarah, yeah, these higher yeah. prices, of course, they're they're percolating around the world. When you're talking to these international buyers there in Lincoln, are, are they commenting on the higher prices throughout the economy as well? Is this something that that truly the whole world is taking a look at? You know, definitely something like that that's on their radar, but that's really why we have to focus on the value of corn-fed um, beef and pork, the, the taste and the, the eating experience that's provided, as well as, um, you know, in talking with some of the buyers just yesterday, they said that they continue to remain really optimism, as optimistic as they try to take advantage of, of latest trends and um, and restaurants and food delivery and e-commerce internationally and trying to, to meet that growing demand, as well as, um, you know, one of the values that they were saying, for example, um, over Brazil is, you know, um, they are much more <clears throat> relying on U.S. Um, pork and beef exports because of um, animal disease and things like that. And, and we have really good precautions and food safety. And so that's one of the reasons that also, in addition to taste and quality, that really sets U.S. corn-fed beef and pork apart. It does. It is a great story to sell. It's a great flavor to back up that story. It's a win-win, Sarah. Love to see corn growers help and sell more of that product overseas. But before we let you go, uh, you are, of course, the Director of Market Development. Let's take the livestock hat off, put on the other hat. Sarah, what else do you have coming this year from the Market Development A-Team you're excited about? Yeah, so we've done a lot of work. Um, we have a, a fourth Consider Corn Challenge coming up. That's in our new uses, things like corn-based plastics, chemicals that can be made in, instead of um, petroleum. We also have a lot of work going on um, in the sustainable aviation fuel space. What's the role that U.S. corn producers and, and U.S. agriculture can play as a whole? Um, we'll be participating in some um, Sustainable Aviation Fuel Summits um, coming up here in September, as well as attending and discussing some work that we're doing around a national incentive for bio-based materials um, at some upcoming conferences, as well as, um, you know, really just trying to, to continue the promotion of corn in these bio-based um, solutions, whether it's the, the, the plastic straws and, and getting those to a corn-based straw or the carbon fiber shell of your car, how can we get manufacturers to use sustainable plant-based materials for those processes? Fantastic. Love to see new uses for corn coming out. Sarah McKay, Director of Market Development at the National Corn Growers Association. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk with Greg Horstmeyer, Editor-in-Chief at DTN, when we return about their recently released Digital Yield Tour, done in partnership with Grow Intelligence and the numbers they came up with. Stick around for more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, where we take a close look at the benefits of cooperative ownership. Each week, we'll host a new guest and discuss how you can get the most from working with your local cooperative. And we'll learn why farmers and ranchers just like you choose cooperatives to help them persevere and prosper. Tune in each Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, Farm Radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. 
Well, inflation data out here today. The headline CPI number was flat month-on-month month in July, which was a dramatic change for the 1.3% gain seen in June. Analysts expecting a slight gain of 0.2%. We saw CPI rising 8.5% year-on-year in July, down from 9.1% in June, and that was below analyst expectations. We see that um, that is definitely a positive note. It was, it was a good report today showing a bit of a moderation in inflation numbers. Some of that uh, probably due to the big drop in commodity prices in July. Now we see grain and oil seed prices rallied again overnight. They're continuing to rally to the upside here today. Looks like some more fun buying possibly in this soy complex with uh, old crop spot August beans over $17 now are reflective of demand in the countryside for old crop beans. Meantime, we see the wheat markets up double digits with cord up moderately. A lot of traders putting in weather premium again as there's fears out there that this month's weather is taking the top off the corn, soybean, and spring wheat crops. China stepping back in to buy new crop soybeans here from the U.S. this morning. Again, 7.2 million bushels. A look at some numbers right now. Cord for December up 6.5, 6.20.5. Soybeans November up 12 and a quarter, 14.41. September bean meal up 15, 10 a ton, 4.64.20. September bean oil down 51 points, 65.25. September Chicago wheat 18 higher, 7.99 and a half. September KC wheat up 16 and a quarter, 8.68. Spring wheat September up 13 and a half, 9.06 and a quarter. August live cattle up 72, 138.70. Feeder cattle August up 37, 179.17. Lean hogs for August 7 higher, 122.27. Mostly higher across cattle and hogs. Crude oil down a dollar 67.88.83. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA marches on here on this Wednesday. Next up, we are looking ahead to harvest. We're getting geared up for harvest expectations. And earlier this week, DTN and Grow Intelligence released their fifth annual digital yield tour, taking a look at the corn and soybean crops with the assistance of satellite data. And their numbers were a little surprising to the market. Joining me now to talk about it is Greg Horsmeyer. He is the editor-in-chief at DTN. Greg, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. Great to be here. Let's start with the uh, the digital yield tour. Greg, I mentioned this is the fifth year it has happened and bring us up to speed. What made DTN look to partner with Grow Intelligence and bring satellites into this research? That, that's a great question. You know, we, we constantly try to find ways to bring new information or new ways to bring information to farmers. I mean, you know, DTN back in its beginning was delivering through FM signal and then satellites uh, to try to get information to farmers. We've always been about pushing the envelope and bringing new ways to get things. So we've participated in, in the physical crop tours uh, for many, many years, for decades. We continue to participate in some of them. Uh, but the whole idea about bringing the digital view to growers was uh, something that we wanted to do for a while. So in 2018, we began to work with Grow and take a look at their 
their models and the way they did things. Um, and obviously we wanted to be, you know, working with somebody that was pretty accurate. And so this has been a great, it's, it's amazing that it's been five years, but it's been a great partnership uh, with them. And, uh, and this year is no, uh, is no exception. No exception indeed. Greg, before we get to this year's yield data, let's talk about what data Grow uses and DTN uses to compile their reports. What sort of information are they looking at? Sure. Well, the, the heart of their data is uh, satellite information, as you said at the outside, the NDVI uh, information that basically measures plant uh, reflectivity. And so how healthy is that crop out there? How green is it? Uh, that's really the, the core of, of what GROW does and, and others that are using satellite data uh, to do that. They then layer in uh, weather information uh, so full disclosure, they use DTN's historical weather data as part of their as part of their calculations, um, and uh, a lot of soil moisture information and other growing conditions, and then to, you know look historically at what those kind of conditions meant to a crop, um, and then the models that they build these artificial intelligence uh, models that what everybody calls machine learning, uh, then calculate all of those data points and say. So given where we are today, what should corn yield look like when, when, the tra when the combines finally roll? Well, let's get to it, Greg. What does their, their, the yield model show for both corn and soybean yields here as we head into fall? Sure. So Monday, we announced the national numbers um, and grows yield there. It was 167.2, 167.2 bushels average per acre. Um, their soybean yield was estimated at 48.9, so just under 49 bushels per acre. You know, that balances against USDA's numbers in July were 177 and 51.5. So grow is a little under on soybeans, uh, not quite three bushels, significantly under USDA's 177 by almost 10 bushels. Uh, for their July numbers. And there's some reasons behind why they think their numbers are a little bit low right now. Let's talk about some of those reasons, because that is much lower than USDA had, as you mentioned, uh, brought to, out to the, to the table from the WASDE report there in July. It's lower than what a lot of traders are estimating we'd see here on Friday's report. What factors were, were GROW considering as reasons why this year could be so variable? Yeah, the, well, variable is actually the key word. That, that's that's the word. Is one of the issues that's out there across the country. And if you've traveled at all uh, across the, the Corn Belt, um, you know that variability is is the is the key. Even within regions, variability has been key because rainfall has been spotty. Um, obviously, a lot less rainfall in the western part of the country than in the eastern part. We continue to sort of suffer that have and have not system there. Um, uh, but also the variability within each state and within within a region itself. And one of the things that we've learned over time is that a variable year usually depresses crop yield. So I think in everybody's thinking that we're probably, you know, maybe going to be below trend line right now with yields. One of the factors that's really affecting GROW's numbers right now, and they were very upfront of that, with it, and, and if you read uh, Katie Dellinger's story uh, from Monday uh, on our website, um, we're very explicit about that. The late planting date that happened this year was so much of the country being delayed, either because they were too dry or too wet, um, does throw the models a little bit of a curve. I mean, the phrase is machine learning. And what I often say is the machines have to learn. They have to see different things and then find out what the end result is and constantly update themselves. And so right now, what Gross told us is their, their models and, and the satellite imagery is looking at a much younger crop than what it would normally be this time of year because planting was delayed so much. What that means is, is that, you know, the, they're looking at the health of the crop right now, which in a lot of the part of the country is not looking very good because of dry weather. And the models say, if that continues, this would be a very low yielding uh, crop. Now, even since the, the data that we put together on Monday, there's been some rain across different parts of the country. And actually, even Monday's data that we used, um, there were a lot of rain uh, that hit a big part of the country over the weekend previous to Monday. And that those data points weren't being picked up yet. Either the birds hadn't flown over and taken new uh, reflectivity imagery, 
or the plants really even hadn't had time to soak some of that rain up to be able to show that they were healthier than when that last data comes through. So, you know, we're always working a little bit in arrears in this world um, by either a half a day to a day. Uh, and so, again, Grow's, Grow's story is, is, and we believe that, is that this is probably a little low. If things continue to improve, we should probably see yields a little higher than that. But if things turned off bad, this is, this is where we could be. Well, and I think that's an interesting point you make. The The models show they, they weren't catching that data, that the rain that came down on Monday, but these yield models are updating almost in real time, aren't they, Greg? They are, yeah. They're, they're constantly updating. And then what GROW is doing for us is we picked a, a period of time in the morning in which we call into them. And that's when we sort of, you know, make the mark and that, that's the yield that we're going to go with at that time. Um, so the state numbers are continuing to be from that day. So uh, yesterday we had Illinois, Indiana and Ohio's information in there. So those numbers were probably a little different than what they were on Monday. Indeed. And, you know, you mentioned Illinois and Ohio you released yesterday. Taking a look at the Eastern Corn Belt, Greg, does the data back up the fact that this crop looks like it's faring better east of the Mississippi? Absolutely. Yeah. What we've seen from weather, you know, and what we've heard in general is that the Eastern Corn Belt is in better condition than the Western part of the country. And and certainly growth data is beginning to show that out. Illinois and in Indiana numbers and Ohio numbers too, we're right on w- with average, maybe just a little below average, but but right around average um, for a five-year of uh, USDA numbers. And so we continue to think that that crop's in pretty good shape, and we continue to hear from farmers that that, that it is. Um, it's the western part of the country that's that's tougher, and we'll begin to hear those numbers. Um, some today and then through the rest of the week. Um, so those those areas of the country will will have a little bit of a sadder story to it, I'm afraid. Absolutely. I've got the Ohio and uh, Indiana, Illinois data in front of me. I'll run through it. Uh, DTN Grow estimates Ohio corn yields at 178.9, beans at 51.8, Illinois corn crop at 196.9, beans at 60, and at Indiana 180.9, and beans at 54.4. So you are expecting some pretty big declines there in the Western Corn Belt. Greg, I imagine just that late spring has intensified the, the slowness of the crop there, particularly in the Northern Plains. That's right. That, that's that's the biggest issue is that the, the delayed planting and even in some cases prevented planting um, because of the conditions out there, um, you know, are going to are going to are leading to that variability that we were talking about earlier, which usually, again, means that uh, for for a U.S. total, we, we have trouble reaching trend line yields when we ever whenever we have a variable crop. Indeed. Greg, you mentioned that this is machine learning is how this this information is being come up with. And that means every time it runs, right, it adds a little bit more data, it gets a little bit better. And this is the fifth year that DTN and Grow have run this uh, yield tour. How have the results compared to final numbers from USDA? Is that the benchmark you're shooting for? Yeah, we, we do use that. I mean, you know, USDA is kind of the, the benchmark on all these things. Um, what has been amazing to me, quite frankly, and I've been following this whole idea of satellite imagery for 30 plus years, um, and I, I would give Grow credit for this, is that they have been mostly very accurate, um, maybe not with what USDA says in August, but more critically, they've been accurate. Their, our, our, their August p- predictions have been typically within a bushel to a little over a bushel with what USDA's final numbers are in January. And that's really what we're trying to get at here is, you know, it's one thing to make prognostications in August, but what is that, how, how does that relate to eventually what comes across the scales uh, in, out in the elevators? And they've been very accurate in those cases. There's only one year, uh, 2020, they were a little bit off. And even there, Grow said, we may be off this year. That was the prevent plant year when uh, we had so much prevented planning going on and their models didn't quite know what to do with that. So we, you know, we had to uh, put a little, little fudge factor in there for that. Greg, where can folks go to see the digital yield tour? So dtnpf.com every day in our top stories area, we will be updating uh, with additional uh, state data. Um, There's also a link in all of those stories to a a holding page website where we have all the stories from the tour, including Monday's numbers and even past years that we have in there. So 
Check that out, folks. We'll be back with more AOA after this. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and the feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference, bite by bite. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. On the first Wednesday of every month, the National Corn Growers brings us the monthly grind here on AOA, looking at the aspects of corn demand. In August, we talked about the partnership between corn and cattle with Kate Maher of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. We are really fortunate to have a great partnership with the National Corn Growers Association. We work together to bring a lot of information to producers, latest technology information to make all of us better and, and keep that demand keep that product flowing to meet that demand that's, that's around the globe. You know, we export a lot of corn through beef. Um, that's really important. Uh, we are fortunate, again, to partner, partner with NCGA on a series that we've been doing on Cattlemen to Cattlemen. Uh, we've just got such a great story to tell together. started at the seed yard in Nebraska talking about sustainability practices and in corn production and beef production, and they just go hand in hand. That goes on to the next next step, um, where we're producing that really amazing grain-fed beef. Tune in on Wednesday, September 7th, for the next edition of the Monthly Grind from our friends at the National Corn Growers Association. We gather together in communities across the nation to remember and honor, to celebrate and support, to light the night. Join us as we lift our lanterns high in order to move toward a world free of blood cancers. Join us as we light the night for a loved one. Join us. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Our mission is to cure leukemia, lymphoma, Hodgkin's disease, and myeloma. Our aim is to improve the quality of life of patients and their families. Join us. We are LLS, and when we walk, cancer runs. Join your community and help bring light to the darkness of cancer. Join us as we light the night. Find your local event at lightthenight.org. That's lightthenight.org. Are you looking to improve crop nutrition and soil health? Anuvia Plant Nutrients has held several future of fertilizer field tours across the Midwest. The final tour will be in Barrett, Minnesota on Thursday, August 11th, and will feature corn and soy. You don't want to miss this exciting opportunity, and space is limited. For more information on dates and locations and to reserve your spot, visit us at FertilizerTour.com. That's FertilizerTour.com. 
Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with an SPF of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. You know, as the concern about inflation and recession grows, one bellwether that some folks have been using is the live cattle market. How are consumers adapting to high-priced beef in this inflationary environment? Well, Chris Swift of the Swift Trading Company down in Nashville, Tennessee, keeps a close watch on what's developing in the cattle markets. And before we get to live cattle demand, Chris, we've got something fun happening today, which is strength in the corn market and strength in the feeder cattle complex. What's driving feed? today <laughs> I really wish I knew Mike but it's uh, it has been going on now and the, the basic premise seems to be the lower herd size most individuals in the business know that cattle production is a very long-term cyclical um, production cycle so we know that it takes a long time and we're at, still at the throes of liquidation right now believing that some expansion is needing but an inability to do such until we get uh, more healed pastures Ah, yes, that drought is continuing to plague the cattle industry. As you think about live cattle demand here, we got that inflation print prices up another 8.5% on average month over month. Chris, does that have you concerned about beef demand as we head into this fall? Not really. I think the consumer has shifted down to a level right now where discretionary spending is going to hold. Uh, school coming back will have a little bit more spending to it, but then after such, they will pull back. We've already noticed that the lesser cuts of meats have gained popularity now. Uh, even some of the different proteins going to alternative proteins have gained some favor now. We've seen pork prices rise because of the heavier demand in that. Anything that, that helps us to overcome the stark price increase of everything else. That's a great point. And those price increases aren't just felt by consumers, Chris, as you noted yesterday in your shoot in the bull newsletter, they're felt by retailers. And now there's some pushback. Can you talk about what's happening there at the retail level for meat? Well, I think that's what we're seeing because the consumer is not in there buying as much quantity out there and is being very price uh, particular on that. So what they want to try to do is lower all of the margins that they possibly can in order to keep their profit margin up. So they have had a tendency to go in and try to strengthen their vertically integrated supply chains there. And I believe that is going to help them to reduce the price volatility and reduce maybe some distribution issues that have popped up here over the last year with the trucking uh, industry. Interesting. So they're going to try to really just grow their margins. Is there anything that the, the cattle feeder or the cow-calf man can do to manage their margins a little bit more aggressively, Chris? You know, it's kind of tough because everything is high. All input costs are high, and labor is extremely high and in short supply when it comes to farm work and, and people that know how to do farm work. You can go to college to learn how to do things, but it's very difficult to go to college to learn how to do real actual farm work. So I, I think that there's not a lot that they can do right now. Hedging the markets can help with some price protection, but really what they have to look forward to is what the next 12 to 16 months are going to bring. And we believe that with the corn crop being a little bit shorter in acres this year than last year, potentially a little bit shorter in the yield from what previous uh, bushels per acres have been to the USDA, we have some concerns about the next 12 to 16 months of higher uh, feed costs. So those feed costs are going to stick around, certainly stay elevated. It seems like a pretty fair guess, Chris. I've got to imagine you see the live cattle price climbing here between that combination of declining herd size and still strong consumer demand as we get out into that uh, you know, first quarter of 23. 
Yeah, without any kind of um, disruptions in, in the uh, packing capacity, th that would be the biggest thing. And we know that the cow slaughter is very, very large, but we also realize that packing capacity has grown over the last 16 to 24 months. So it's going to be very, very difficult for any herd size now to tax packing capacity. So again, I think what we do is we try to manage the margins in there to keep the price from exploding to the consumer, because we all know if we push the price higher there, the consumer begins to back off even further and beef demand crashes then. So we're all walking a very fine line now with the consumer, believing there's not going to be more new money coming into the industry. So how do we redistribute the money that is there and, and it has been uh, steeped into the markets? Which sector gets that? And so far, the backgrounding sector has been the most privy to all the money. The, the premiums that have not only been showing up on the cash side of it, but the futures have consistently held premiums. The cash market and the fat cattle market has been very dismal, and beef prices have not been soaring anymore. That's a good point. So the backgrounder has been cleaning up there. Looking over one of the other factors you touched on, Chris, that rise in the pork price, making beef look more competitive at the meat case. Do you think that pork price hike is, is here to stay, at least uh, for the remainder of this fall? Well, until we get uh, some kind of notifications on the next hogs and pigs report that they're going to expand some. So the one nice thing about pork expansion is it just does not take very long at all to put a new crop of pigs on the market. So, you know, in less than 12 months, you can already have a new set of hogs uh, ready for slaughter much faster than what you can in the beef market. But right now, I've not heard of any um, expansion that's going to take place right now. China's hog population has healed significantly now that they have put all of their pork production in a controlled environment. So the likelihood of us increasing our exports greatly anywhere is just not very good right now. On the expansion front, Chris, you and I and a lot of other analysts have been really optimistic about returns growing to the cattle feeder here in the future. We've been thinking that for 16 months, some of us. Hasn't happened yet. Do you think it's going to happen here as we get in a little deeper into this year? It, it's going to be tough because there is a real battle going on. The, the retail meat sellers want lower volatility and they want less uh, price volatility out there. Um, they want greater distribution and they want a stronger supply chain that reduces their prices. The cattle feeder needs volatility, so every now and then when the market spikes up, he can take advantage of that or at least on a more consistent basis being a rise. So we have one, a cattle feeder that's trying to make the most money that he possibly can, and we have the end retail meat seller that's trying to keep beef prices as low as they possibly can. That's the war, and the market sorts it out using prices as the barometer. Chris Swift of Swift Trading Company, author of the Shooting the Bull newsletter. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. And folks, tune in tomorrow. We'll be on location in Omaha at the ACE Conference talking biofuels here on AOA. We look forward to you joining us then. Have a great day, everybody. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. It's been said that when someone you love has Parkinson's, you have Parkinson's. The Parkinson's Foundation knows that the disease doesn't just affect the diagnosed. It affects everyone who supports and helps care for them. If you or someone you know is living with Parkinson's, a neurological disease that affects movement, we understand that it can be difficult to know where to find help. If you have questions, the Parkinson's Foundation has answers. Answers for everyone in the fight. We can help you understand the disease. Help you find expert care and local support. Give you tips for living a better life. And share the latest research. Find your answers and join us in the fight against Parkinson's. To learn more, please go to parkinson.org. Or call 1-800-473-4636. That's 1-800-473-4636. The Parkinson's Foundation. Better, better lives, lives together. together.